if you will, uh, will you two turn with me to Luke chapter 16? Uh, this morning we're, will be the, the last time we're in Luke. Starting next week, we'll start our Advent series, uh, and, uh, and we'll be in Matthew 1 and 2 for, for four weeks, and then uh, we get into the new year, and, and we'll go back, get back to Luke and, and all that. So, if you will, Luke chapter 16, we're going to be looking at the second half of it, starting in verse 14. You know, one thing that we realize about our culture is that image is really important in our culture. Uh, it's not just about what you do, but how you look while doing it that really matters. It's not just what you do, it's how you look. Uh, take, for instance, uh, physical fitness. According to an article in Forbes mag- magazine in 2021, Americans spent $113 billion in athletic apparel. $113 billion spent on clothes to sweat in. It's not just what you do that matters. It's how you look as you do it. Uh, maybe you've seen this. Maybe you've gone to the gym, and, 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 and there in front of you are, are, are lovely people who, from head to toe, are wearing the latest in athletic apparel. And they look really, really good. Not only that, but their hair is done with gel. Some of them got makeup on. And you walk in and you notice they're not even glistening. There's no sweat. And by the time you leave, still, there's no sweat. And, and, and there's this, this understanding, like, there's this image that's being maintained. This image of physically fit. I am physically fit because I'm wearing the right clothes and I'm in the right place. And, and take it into account that there might be an MD out there. There might be a doctor out there who would say, you know, that person's my patient. And if you take a look at their lab work, their cholesterol is too high. If you take a look at their blood pressure, their blood pressure is too high. They're, they're eating the wrong foods. They're, they're drinking the wrong, wrong drinks. They're, they're not getting enough sleep. And what it amounts to is a person who's actually not physically fit at all. Their doctor might say something very, very different. And yet there's this image that they're maintaining in front of the mirror and in front of the other people at the gym of I am physically fit. Uh, maybe some of you are, are like me. Maybe you've looked in the mirror at home and said to yourself, I can't go to the gym looking like this. And you're talking about your, your own physical fitness. And, 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 and for me, it's like I look in the mirror, it's like I, I'm not in good enough shape to go to the gym. You think about that, right? Like the thing that I need the most to go and do, I don't go and do because I won't look good doing it. We struggle with that. This, this, this reality, there's an image that we want to uphold to the world. And oftentimes it is a facade and it's a lie. Well, last week, if you were here, um, we looked at the first part of Luke chapter 16. And Jesus tells this parable. And, and at the end of it, he sort of he lifts up this individual and he sort of says, there's something about this guy that you should be like. There's something about him that you should emulate. And, uh, and, and this individual, he was, he's the dishonest manager. He wasted his master's wealth in order to pad for himself a future of security as he's going to get fired. And we look at this story, and we look at Jesus lifting up this guy, and we're like, like him? Like, he's a scumbag. Like, he's lazy, he won't work, he, he, he's too proud to beg, and, and, and all he's about is about using, you know, his shrewdness in order to secure for himself a, a, a place of, of, of rest and comfort where he doesn't have to, to, to work. He, he, he's, doing, he's doing all of this in order to preserve his life. Like, Jesus, this guy's gone too far. And Jesus' response really is, no, he hasn't gone far enough. 
You see, he, he's been shrewd about preserving this life. He should be shrewd about preserving eternal life. Be shrewd about pursuing life eternal. This life is so short. But, but Jesus upholds this character. Now, and when we get to the passage this morning in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 14, we find out that uh, Jesus' audience was a little bit bigger than his disciples. There's a group of Pharisees, religious type people, who are listening into Jesus' conversation. They hear what Jesus says. They, they hear how Jesus has sort of lifted this, this character up, and now they're gonna mock him. They're gonna scorn him for it, all right? So look with me. Uh, Luke 16, beginning in verse 14. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand all of this. We need you to, uh, to guide us, um, to, to make this passage accessible uh, help us to get to the root of what it is that you're, you're saying and the question that you're really asking of all of us. Uh, in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, upfront honesty. We've been in Luke for a year now, and of all the passages that we've encountered in this book, this one has been the most difficult and challenging. This one I have been struggling with for, for weeks in order to, to, to sort of try to access what is the heart of this passage and what does it mean, and let alone how we're supposed to apply it. Uh, how many of you uh, can, can sort of see why? I mean, as, it, as we're reading this passage along, how many of you like had all sorts of question marks just pop up in your head? Like, what does Jesus mean when he, when he says here that, that everyone forces his way into the kingdom of heaven? What does that, what does that mean? Well, why is there 
this verse about divorce and remarriage in the center of this. Did Luke get something out of place that like this belong in another chapter and somehow, you know, there's some sort of translation mistake and this ends up here in the middle of this dialogue? And this parable is really, really strange. Like, is this supposed to be like an accurate picture of what the afterlife is supposed to look like? Can people in hell see people in heaven and talk to them? Like, there's all sorts of weird things that are in this passage. And I've, I've wrestled with this for, for a few weeks now. And, and, and I've even sort of seen this in the, in the commentaries. Uh, one of these, the commentaries that I use is, is, is written by a really, really smart guy who knows the Greek language really well, and he's able to take the Greek and, and help you understand what this means and what that means. But when it comes down to what a passage essentially means and how you're supposed to apply it, he had very, very little to say. And I looked at other commentaries and, and more pastoral kind of commentaries, and they generally have been really helpful and insightful about revealing things and thinking about things or seeing things that I never saw before. And, and so, you know, helping me understand, but helping me to, to bring application to it. And still, those other commentators were just like, um, don't be in love with money. Something like that. It's like this big, this big shoulder shrug. It's like, I don't know. This is hard, you know. This is, this is difficult. And so as much as I would like to just read the passage to you and just say, eh, this is hard, and just walk away, I, I don't get to do that. And so I, I've been, been really, really struggling with this, this passage, to be completely honest with you. And so I, I think that there is some things that we can do uh, to make the passage accessible so we can get to the, to the heart of the matter. But it's going to take some work to get there. And honestly, it's going to be like, you, you, we're going to spend like 90% of our time digging the mine shaft and only 10%, 10 of the time digging out the gold, okay? And, and so we have to do a lot of con contextual sort of work. And so without any further ado, let's just get started. Uh, the first thing we need to talk about is who these Pharisees were. And the Gospel of Luke gives us a really big picture of, of who these Pharisees were. Um, and so we need to go back a, a little bit and we need to go forward a little bit and, uh, and, and try to understand them a little bit more. What we've seen so far about the, the Pharisees is that um, they were wealthy, they were highly, highly religious, and they were political influencers of society. Wealthy, religious, political influences of, of, of society. When a Pharisee walked into the room, you knew that they were a Pharisee. From the, what they wore on their head, the, like the turban-like thing, to these phylactery things they wore, they're, they're, like, they were wooden boxes that contained scripture in them, and they actually, I mean, it's like a, a, like a human unicorn walking around with these, these boxes on their forehead, and it's all to sort of, to, to, to this big show to say, look, I love God's word so much, I'm strapping it to my forehead. And I'm, it, it's always on my mind, literally, right? And so they're wearing these, these, these elaborate robes and they're white and they're purple and, and, and they, they go all the way to the ground and there are these big tassels. And like, you knew a Pharisee when you saw him. They're also known for walking around and praying loudly in the streets and they would just stop abruptly and, and, and all traffic around them would, would stop as they prayed really, really loud. Obnoxious. They believe that they deserve the best seats at banquets and, and parties. They believe that they should be the center of attention. They were all about that. And, and, and so they, they have this, this image that they're portraying to the world about how good and how righteous they were. And essentially, these are individuals who believe that not only have they earned heaven, but God owes them heaven. Uh, skip ahead with me. Look at uh, Luke 18. 
Uh, and, and we see something in, in Luke 18. Jesus tells another parable that includes a Pharisee that gives us a, a, a more fuller picture of what they were like. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trust in themselves that they're righteous, and they treat others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted here's, here's Luke giving us another picture of, of a, the type of a person that a Pharisee uh, was um, there's something called a, the Qumranic text that contains this, this article called the Damascus Rule and it's something that the Pharisees would have followed and according to the Damascus Rule there are three things that tend to ensnare God's people. Three, three traps that God's people tend to fall into. The first is idolatry, the second is adultery, and the third is the misuse of wealth. Okay? So, Pharisees would have followed this, this, this rule, and they would have lived their lives upholding an image that would, would which demonstrate to the world around them they weren't idolaters, they weren't adulterers, and they didn't mis mishandle wealth. So look what we just read, and see this man, he's walking into the temple, and he's praying to God. He's not an idolater, right? Like he's going to the place of, of worship to worship God, and he's praying to God. But is he actually praying to God? No, he's not talking to God. He's talking to everybody else that's in the temple. And he's saying, hey, everybody, look at me. He's not praying to God. He's not worshiping God. In fact, he's putting himself on display in order to be worshiped. And so that first net, is he an idolater? Absolutely. He worships himself. But then he says, quite flatly, I do not commit adultery. I'm not an adulterer. Jesus is, uh, in the passage that we just looked at, in the, our, our central passage, he's going to point out that that's a lie. There, there's, there's a common practice among the Pharisees, uh, something that's best described um, as, a, as a, a sort of serial monogamy. Anyway, we'll get back to that. But he falls into this, this second net of a, he's an adulterer based on, on God's definition. But, but third, the misuse of wealth. Here this guy is in his prayer and he's saying, I, I give a tenth of everything I have to the poor. I, I, I don't cheat anybody. I'm not an extortioner. And we read right through what he's saying and we say, this, this guy doesn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. This guy will give, but not to an extent that will actually you know, affect his bottom line. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't love people. He's showing this world, this, this false image, this facade. And, and, and he wants the world's approval, and he doesn't care about God's approval at all. And so we get this picture of, of, of what a Pharisee is like, and, 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 and how do these Pharisees encounter Jesus? So here comes Jesus, and he, and he enters the scene, and here's a, here's a guy who's poor. He's, he's nobody from nowhere. He's got a ragtag group of followers with him. He's not wealthy. He's dependent upon people to support his ministry. He doesn't have any money. He's dressed like a blue-collar worker. Like he, there, There's nothing about him that resembles a Pharisee. He's so plain and ordinary and poor, and yet he's got this, these crowds of people surrounding him. And the Pharisees look at this, and they're jealous of him. 
And so what they, they, they begin to do is to undermine Jesus' ministry. And they, the simple way that they want to go about doing that is by saying that Jesus is trying to abolish the law. They see Jesus and he's healing on the Sabbath day. It's breaking the law. They see Jesus and he's, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, breaking the law. They see Jesus and he's, he, he's, he's touching people that are deemed unclean. He's breaking the law. He, he's trying to abolish the law, the law that our lives are built upon. Here's this Jesus, this, this rabbi, he's trying to destroy everything. That's, that, that, that's the insinuation, and that's, that, that's how they're trying to undermine him. And to remind uh, you know, ourselves a little bit about the law, uh, it, it's, it's the Old Testament, essentially. It's the first five books. It's what the prophets said. But, but God gives his people, right after he takes them out of slavery, he gives them his law. And it's a law that's meant to define them. He essentially says, I'm holy, and if you're going to be my people, you're going to be holy too. Because you're going to reflect to the, to the rest of the world what I'm like. You're going to represent me, and so you need to meet my standards and there's two standards to meet. There's the moral law, and that's what we see in, in the Ten Commandments. So don't worship any other god but me. Don't create other gods to worship. Don't abuse the name of God. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't tell lies about your neighbor. Don't lust after what your neighbor has. Those are the Ten Commandments. You might be familiar with them. So that's the moral law. But then there's the holiness codes. And we see this in Leviticus, all sorts of, of, of rules about what you could eat or not eat or what touch or not touch, what you need to wear, what rituals to observe, and how, like, all these intimate and intricate details about holiness. I mean, it goes so far even to, to tell men how they can trim their beard. But you see, all of that is meant to put on display what God is like. He's so perfect. He's so holy. He's so different. So God gives his law so that the world will see what he's like. Problem is, is nobody can obey it. Nobody can obey it. It's a standard that's just not meetable. It's impossible for fallen human beings, broken human beings, to be able to meet this standard. It's too high, it's too much. And so along with giving the law, God gives this sacrificial system. When you break the law, you can sacrifice an animal to make up for it. Take an animal without blemish. Take an animal to be your substitute. Shed its blood. Offer it as a sacrifice in your place. You can have a substitute. So the sacrificial play, the system comes into, into place. And this, is, and this is what rules for a really long time. But see, the law shows one thing. You can't meet God's standards. The sacrificial system shows one thing. You need God, and you need his help. You can't do it. You need God. That's what this whole system puts into place, and that's what it preaches, so to speak. But, but this can't endure forever. This can't endure forever. Think about it this way. Uh, I heard this week that um, uh, the population of, of, of human beings on the, the planet has now reached 8 billion. 8 billion people on the planet now. If all of them had converted to, to Judaism, Everybody was a, Judaism, was a Jew and was trying to follow the, the law of Moses, and every time they failed, they offered an animal as a sacrifice. Do you think that there would be any animals left? I mean, I, I think with 8 billion people on the planet, as much as we sin, if we were to offer sacrifices every time that we did in accordance with the law and the sacrificial system, there, every mammal on the planet would be extinct, Right? So this can't endure forever. There's, there's something that has to come along that replaces this. And so we see this in Ezekiel. Ezekiel um, uh, 32, or 36. 
Uh, The prophet says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is essentially saying, the law is ineffective at changing the human heart. I need to do something that changes the human heart. I can't change you from the outside in. I have to change you from the inside out. And so Jesus comes. God takes on flesh. He's fully God. He's fully human. And that means that he knows what it means to be a physical human being. It means he knows what it means to feel. He knows what it means to desire. He knows what it means to walk in your shoes. He's fully human. And so here he is, and he's entering onto the scene and the stage, and, and, and he's this ragtag group of guys with him, and he's, he's nobody from nowhere, and he's, he's poor, and yet he's got a crowd of people following around him. And so the Pharisees are saying he's trying to abolish the law. He's trying to disregard the law because he's healing people on the Sabbath day, and he's touching people that are unclean. They're trying to discredit him, but, but Jesus says, no, I didn't come to abolish the law. In fact, that's what he says in Matthew 5. 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But before he fulfills them, he expands them. Uh, In that same chapter, he gives us an example of how he expands the law. Verse 27 and 28, you've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. That's from the Ten Commandments we just looked at. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He expands the law. And now the law, it doesn't just govern your behavior. Now it governs your desire. It's it's not just about what you do. It's about what you want to do. So if there's a man who says that he wants to have an affair with his neighbor's wife, but he never acts on those desires, then he's not guilty of adultery. Jesus says, ah, but you are. See, by Jesus' standard for adultery... I don't think there's an adult in this room who's not guilty. It's not just about what you've acted on, it's about what you've wanted to act on. So he expands the law, and if you think the law was impossible before, he takes that to the nth degree. There's no way you can meet this standard. There's no way. In other words, Jesus is forcing forcing us to recognize we can't do it. We need God. So he expands the law, but then he fulfills it. He fulfills it because from birth to death, every single moment of his life was complete obedience and faithfulness to God, not just in his actions, but also in his heart and his intentions. Jesus never desired that relationship with his neighbor's wife. Jesus never desired sin. And that's how he fulfills the law. He completes it. You see, here's the point of it is that here comes Jesus and he lives the life that we can't live to make a great exchange with us. We'll talk about that more in a second. But before we we get into the passage, there's one more thing to talk about, and that's the purpose of parables themselves. Why did Jesus tell parables? Here we, we encounter a very difficult parable. Not every story that Jesus told was meant to illuminate something. Not every time did he tell a story was it meant for people to grasp it and to understand it more. Oftentimes he told stories to actually create confusion. He says uh, this in Mark chapter four. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. 
See, see, God knows what heart he needs to go after. A, a parable serves in, in a way like a, a, a magnet. Uh, you know, a, a magnet said they have, they have polar ends, a north and a south end. And, and, and a parable encounters a, a heart, and a heart listens to the parable. And, and depending on the polarization of that heart, it will either be drawn in by that parable or it will be repelled by that parable. And that's what happens when people encounter Jesus. Either we're drawn into him or we're, we're repelled by him. And the purpose of this parable is to repel. It repels. So with that in mind, let's get into the, uh, into the, the text a little more. Verse 14 again. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They were lovers of money. Right off the bat, there's this parenthetical statement by Luke. Pharisees are lovers of money. And he just got done saying or quoting Jesus as you can't love both God and money. They don't love God. They love money. In other words, they're idolaters. They worship money. Money is the thing that they use to prop themselves up with. Money is the thing that they use to create this image that they portray to the rest of the world. They worship money, so they're idolaters. Keep going. Verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, you're the guy at the gym dressed really, really well. And because you think you're dressed well in athletic apparel, and because you're at the gym, you think you're physically fit. Meanwhile, God's your MD. He's your doctor. He's looking at you. He knows your lab results. He knows you're a walking dead man. You're an abomination. You're showing this version of yourself to the rest of the world that you're physically or that you're spiritually fit, and God knows the truth about you. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. The law and the prophets were until John. What does that mean? It means that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Like the message of God's people, that's what was preached. The law and the prophets. Obey the law. Oh, you can't. You need God. Meet this standard. Oh, you can't. You need God. That's the message that was proclaimed until John. That's the message that John proclaimed. And then Jesus steps onto the scene and he proclaims a new message. He proclaims the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. And what has changed? What's changed? He, he didn't abolish the law. He expanded it and he fulfilled it. The law is still in effect. The law is still at play. And every single one of us is one day going to stand before God and he's going to, to open up the books and everything that we've ever done to transgress his laws is going to be revealed. And there will be two people on that day. There'll be one group of people that is trying to, to proclaim their own righteousness, but then there'll be another group of people who are pointing at Jesus and saying, he's my righteousness. He lived the life I didn't live. You see, Jesus came in every single moment of his life. He lived this perfectly obedient, faithful life to God the Father. And then he goes to the cross and he makes this great exchange for us. He gives us his righteousness. We meet him at the cross and he gives us his righteousness. It's imputed to us so that God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son. And so one day we stand before God the Father and we can say, we did all of those things, but I claim Jesus. I have Jesus. I have his life imputed to me. That's the great exchange. The problem is, is that what Jesus got 
in that exchange was our sin, our punishment. The wrath of God that was due to us, he bore. It went on him. The God the Father raised him from the dead. But you see, the, the law and the prophets, it's not done. It keeps going. We're still, it's still in effect until one day when that, that day of judgment happens. And then after that, a new heaven, a new earth. And the law, no more. But it's still in effect, and that's the point. Now, he says something here. He says that everyone forces his way into it, the kingdom of God. I don't have a clue. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> everyone forces their way into it. I, I've really struggled with this. Um, you know, the, the heaven is by means of salvation. Salvation is by means of grace. It's a gift. I don't see struggling in, in that. I, I don't see that. So, I... I I'm sorry, I don't know. If you know, let me know, okay? All right, thanks. Um, verse 17, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Heaven and earth will pass away before it becomes void. It's still in, in effect. Now we get to the hardest verse of the text. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, this verse has been taken out of context so many times. Somebody in, in a church is going through a divorce or, or has been divorced and they're remarrying, and so somebody else in the church is taking take out their systematic theology book, and they're like, oh, the, the, the divorce, uh, Luke 16, 18. Here's what it says. This is a passage. It's not about divorce and remarriage. It's not. When it comes to a passage about divorce and remarriage, you look at Matthew, look at Corinthians, there are grounds for divorce and, 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 and reasons why to be remarried. This is not a passage about divorce and remarriage. This is a passage where Jesus is confronting religious leaders who believe that they're righteous when they're not actually righteous. They said, I'm not an adulterer. Right, that's the second net. The first is, I'm not an idolater. We just saw, they worship money, they're idolaters. The second net is, is I'm not a, a, an adulterer. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you are. See, there was this common practice among Pharisees. It, it's best described as serial monogamy. During the intertestamental period, there was, there, there was writings about what a man could divorce his wife for. And it could be something as simple as her burning the soup. It could have been something completely just benign. If he simply is displeased by her, he can put her away. He can divorce her. And he can move on to the next. Serial monog monogamy. Just, just going from one spouse to another to another. And, and all the while claiming, well, I'm not an adulterer because I'm not spending time with two women at the same time. Jesus is pointing out, no, no. You are an adulterer. You are an adulterer. So they're idolaters, they're adulterers. What about the love of money? That's what the parable is all about. And so rather than, than read it again, I'm going to retell it. There's two people, two men in this story. One is a rich man clothed in purple who eats sumptuously every day. And he is contrasted with a poor man who has a name. His name is Lazarus. It means he's uh, helped of by God. A poor man, and he is laid at the rich man's gate. He can't walk. He can't shoo the dogs away who come and lick his sores, and he's literally starving to death. He longs to be fed by the scraps from the rich man's table. 
Two individuals are, that are completely different. And, and Jesus isn't saying, oh, because you're rich, because of your clothing, or because you eat very well, like, you're, you're, you're a bad guy. No, it's, it's having those things and not being willing to share with somebody who's literally on your doorstep dying and starving to death. What's interesting about this passage is that the rich man isn't named, but Lazarus is. And, and of all the parables that, I, that I, I've read in, in the New Testament, I think this is the only one where a character in a parable has a name. Lazarus, God, Jesus gives him a name, and that's to show that the other guy doesn't have a name. In other words, one guy's remembered by God. The other guy isn't remembered by God. He isn't remembered by God. So one man, he spends his life, and it, it, it's literally hell on earth, but the other one literally has heaven on earth, and then there's situations, and their roles are reversed when they die. Both die, one goes to Abraham's side, that's, that's Lazarus. The other guy dies, and he, he goes to Hades, and he's in torment, he's in anguish. And, and here's where it sort of gets really strange. I, I don't think that Jesus intended this parable to be an accurate picture of the afterlife. I think he's, he's using it to teach us some things, but I don't think it's an accurate picture of the afterlife. I don't think people in hell can see people in heaven and talk to them. But that's what we see in, in the story. The rich man sees Lazarus at Abraham's side. He calls to Abraham, Father Abraham. It's one more picture that, that Jesus is painting that this individual is a Pharisee. He believes that because he's a son or a descendant of Abraham that he's automatically in and welcomed by God. But he's not. He's a Pharisee. But he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and dip it on my, on my tongue to really relieve me, to, to relieve my anguish. And this is really, really telling. It's really telling because what we don't see from the rich man is, oh, there's Lazarus. Lazarus, I'm sorry. Lazarus, forgive me. Lazarus, I should have fed you. Lazarus, I should have taken care of you. He didn't say that. Father Abraham, send Lazarus to serve me. The point is this, is that even hell cannot bring a person to repentance. Even hell can't bring a person to repentance. You, the, the person, they're sorry for the consequences they find themselves in. They're not sorry for the sin. He's not sorry for how he treated Lazarus. He's still looking down on him. He's my servant. Send him to me. Abraham says, no, there's a divide between us. We can't come to you. You're not coming to us. And then he says, well, well send Lazarus to my brothers. Send Lazarus to my brothers to, to preach repentance to them. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophet. They had what you had. See, the law is sufficient to show you that you need that you don't meet the expectation, that you're not righteous and that you need God. And here's a man who, who didn't think that way. He believed that he could be righteous on his own. Pharisees think that they could have a righteousness apart from God. They have Moses. They have the prophets. And, 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 and the rich man says, well, no, 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 it, that wasn't enough for me. Send them Lazarus. If they see a, a man raised from the dead, that will convince them. And look what Moses' response is. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. See, one of the things that makes this passage inaccessible or hard to understand is that we look at these Pharisees and we're like, 
they're so far removed from our cultural context. We don't, we don't have individuals like this in our society. We don't have those super religious, political influence. Like, we don't have really people that look like this in, in our culture. And I think that with a little bit of examination, I think you can actually see there's, there's a lot of Pharisees in our culture. In fact, I think our, our world tends to view uh, uh, righteousness the way the Pharisees did. I think there's a lot in common. At first blush, you see that, you know, Pharisees, they did believe in a God, and they did believe in an, uh, in an authoritative law, right? And our culture doesn't. Our culture would choose to divine itself, you know, apart from that. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, in his preaching book, he, he, he writes about how culture sort of defines itself, and it's something like this. Uh, we've come to realize that we don't need God to explain the world we see. Science does that job for us. We don't need God or religion to be moral, to love and work for a better world, or to have meaning and fulfillment in life. What we need is to be free to live life as we see fit and to work together to make the world a better and more just place to live. Religion gets in the way of all of this. It constrains our freedom to live as we wish and divides us so we can't work together. That's the, how the world sort of see. We don't need God. We don't need Christianity. We don't need a moral law. We just need to define ourselves. And if I define myself and you define yourself, then we can work together in harmony to figure out this whole thing. But it's about everybody defining themselves. Everybody, and, and we always say, like, that, that's not a Pharisee. But look at, look at a Pharisee. Pharisees believed that they were righteous because they interpreted God's law a new, different way. They interpreted God's law according to their own terms. In other words, they were in authority over God's authority. You see, both the Pharisee and, and many people in our culture have this in common, the ultimate rejection of authority and the ultimate uh, uh, idea of, uh, of self-fulfillment. Uh, people in our culture really believe that they're defined by their own desires and their own dreams. Uh, Keller goes on and he says this, our society's main heroic narrative is that of the individual as standing up and being true to himself or herself over society's opposition. It's this notion, I get to define me based on my own hopes and dreams, and I can do that apart from any other authority. I don't need God to do it. I don't need religion to do it. I don't need any sort of law to do it. I don't even need culture to do it. And in that, they're fooling themselves. The, the idea that you can define yourself apart from any other entity is just a flat-out lie. And, and, and Keller illustrates this this way. He says, take two individuals, two, two men, and they're living in different time periods and in different cultures. But both of these men have the same base impulses. They have this in common. One of their base impulses is uh, the, they're vengeful. They're violent and vengeful. So in other words, if someone should uh, dishonor them or disrespect them, their desire would be to strike them down. Chop them into bits. Get even. They're both vengeful, violent men. Their second uh, desire and, and impulse is that of same-sex attraction. So depending on what time and what culture they live in, they will feed one impulse and subdue the other. If the man lives in 800 AD as an Anglo-Saxon, that violent tendency, his culture is going to say, go for it. His, his culture will affirm that. And so when he strikes down somebody who's disrespected him, his culture won't have anything negative to say. However, the same-sex attraction, he better keep on the down low in that culture. 
Take that same type of person, fast forward to 2022 in, in living in one of our major urban centers in America, and that individual has same-sex attraction, the culture is going to say, go for it. They're going to affirm it. They're going to endorse it. And, and they're going to embrace him with open arms. But as far as the violent part, you better think some, some therapy or some anger management for that. See, our culture does define us. We want to believe the, the, the lie that, that, that it doesn't, that it doesn't control us, but it does. See, in the end, there is an authoritative standard that we live by. The question is, is it the culture or is it God? Is it culture or is it God? Jesus says here, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. We live in a culture full of people who are trying to justify their lives in front of one another. Nobody is living autonomously. Nobody, nobody's actually defining themselves apart from culture. It's a myth. But they haven't come. Will you define yourself based on the culture or based on what God says about you? So here's where Jesus comes to the, to the end of it. He comes to this really abrupt end. He finishes the parable, and he essentially just walks away. Like, there's no discussion afterwards. There's no, you know, Q&A time. Like, there, there's no uh, explanation of any of this. He just sort of, he, he just sort of poses a question, so to speak, and then he walks away. And, it, and the question is posed through, through what um, Abraham says to, to the rich man. He says, if they do not hear the Moses, hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And here's the question. Will you be convinced if somebody rises from the dead. Will you allow whoever rises from the dead to define you? The, the, the person that rises from the dead, do they have authority over you? And ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's, he's asking them the question. He's saying, basically, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. Will you believe in me then? This morning, it's going to feel like kind of an abrupt halt. I don't have application questions for you. I don't have like, here, you know, here's, here's three ways to love your neighbor better, or here's four ways to have a deeper prayer life or something like that. I don't have any application questions except for one. Is Jesus risen from the dead? Is Jesus risen from the dead? See, how you answer that question is the most defining thing about you. Is Jesus risen from the dead? See, if he is risen from the dead, then he's the only one worth knowing. If Jesus is risen from the dead, he's the only one worth imitating. If Jesus is risen from the dead, he's the only one worth following. If Jesus is risen from the dead, there's only one person who has authority over your life. There's only one person that can define you. There's only one person that can tell you who you are. Is Jesus risen from the dead? How you answer that question is the most important thing in the world. Is Jesus risen from the dead? In a moment, uh, we're going to have a baptism. This last week, uh, I was emailed, and, and someone said, hey, uh, we wanted to baptize our son uh, last, the last couple of weeks, and we weren't able to do it. Will you fill the tub again? And essentially, yes. Just so you know, we fill the tub for one person. So if you want to be baptized, let us know. We love to baptize people, okay? 
Uh, baptism is, is the ultimate symbol of what it is that we're talking about. It's an identifying with Christ. It's saying, I don't fulfill the law. I've broken it. I've failed. I, I, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I have a Savior in Jesus Christ, and He died for me, but He didn't just die for me. He rose for me. Because He rose for me, He is my authority. He is my King. He has sovereignty over me. He defines who I am. Baptism is, is symbolic in that. We go in the water. We, we're saying, I'm willing to lay down my life for Christ. And coming up out of the water, we're saying, I get to have a new life because of Christ. You might be here this morning and, and you've seen us. This is the third week of baptisms. And maybe, you know, uh, two weeks ago, you, you saw this and you heard the invitation. If you've not yet been baptized, but you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then be baptized. And you heard that invitation and maybe you thought to yourself, I don't know how it would look to other people. Like I, I have this image. I don't know what people would think of me. I'm scared of what people would think of me. Maybe what, what you need to do is the thing that you're not doing because you're worried about how you'll look doing it. But the invitation was given, and, and you, didn't, you didn't come. And then last week, it happened again, and the invitation was given, and you didn't come. You didn't step forward. And so, so maybe you're like, like, what are the odds of them filling it a third time? And you made this deal with God. Anybody make a deal with God? If they fill it a third time, then I'll, then I'll get baptized? Huh? It's time. Maybe not. I don't know. The reality is, it, it, it is uh, this is something that we get to participate in. It's an identifying thing for us as Christians. And, and if you're here this morning and you say, I've never been baptized, and I would like to be baptized this morning, I'm going to pray. I'm going to walk out there. And I have clothes for you to change into. We have towels for you. And we'll come back in together and you'll be baptized. Right? Um, I will say this. Uh, we have a good heater now. And the warmest spot in the building is actually in that tub. <laughs> so if you're cold and you haven't been baptized, just kidding. How we answer the question, is Jesus raised from the dead? That's the most important thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how incredible a plan that you put together. That we were fallen and we were broken and that we were lost. We rejected you. We walked away from you. We didn't believe in you. We disobeyed you. We did everything to wander as far away from you as we could. And yet you put this plan into motion to come after us, to come get us. And everything, including prophets and, and patriarchs and laws and weird rules, and all of it came together for a specific strategic purpose of sending your son to do what we couldn't do, to pay a price we couldn't pay in order to atone for things we couldn't atone for redeem us and ransom us back to you. The story of salvation, how beautiful, how marvelous, how fantastic it is. And we couldn't dream it up, we couldn't plan it, but you did because of your great love for us. Father, 
how wonderful your love is for us. And Lord Jesus, your willingness to come, your willingness to submit, to, to get low, to take on flesh, to become small and insignificant, to be brutally murdered. And you willingly did it to ransom us. And the Holy Spirit, you come and you fill us and you empower us and you lead us. And, and all of this, this beautiful story, you did for your glory. I pray we'd live in light of it. Lord Jesus, you are our risen King. You are the firstborn of the dead. Because of you, we get to have new life. You get to define us. You're the one with all authority and all power. For your glory, amen.